Now, I know you get just one particular sensibility from these podcasts, and uh, you can take it and leave it, and there are 10 trillion other voices out there, and uh, all you can do when you do a thing like this in the axial age of religion, as apparently Robert Bella is saying today in a book that I've not yet looked at but I'm eager to read, you have to simply uh, give it as you see it and then let others decide on their own. There's no accepted authority or some kind of pipeline into which these podcast opinions have any kind of uh, confirmation largely. You simply have to look at it as an atomized listener and see what you think. Well, now, this particular podcast is entitled Lounge Crooner Classics, and it's an attempt to to really do a good podcast again, to really do something lasting. Um, generally speaking, the podcasts that uh, have received the um, most sustained feedback in PZ's podcast are two. The first is on the history of giant crab movies, which drew an unbelievable to me in this studio uh, where I'm speaking at. Uh, I could not believe the amount of interest that seemed to fall like pennies from heaven in that very serious discussion of the history of giant crab movies, something I've given so much thought to and uh, wanted to present a little bit of the common um, uh, wisdom, (laughs) the unique wisdom, the absurd wisdom on giant crab movies. And then the second uh, podcast that received... um, Uh, just hoots and hollers, was the podcast on Journey. And I'd stand by that one as I'd stand by the history of giant crab movies. Now today, I'm going to talk a little bit about the uh, history of lounge crooner classics. Lounge crooner classics. And I'll say what they are, because it specifically refers to four particular items that I wish you to think about as the kind of antidote to rage. Now, um, I'm going to go from the sublime to the ridiculous. I start with the sublime, lounge crooner classics in the history of giant crab movies, and then one moves to the ridiculous, but the also uh, deeply true, and it's the amount of rage, the amount of anger that there is in the world. It's one of those um, fundamental intrinsic uh, aspects of human nature that uh, nothing we do seems to be able to neutralize it except some form of actually um, coming to it and living with it and through it, known as abreaction historically. It's the grounding of the electrical lightning bolts uh, by virtue of something that absorbs their impact and diverts it from elsewhere. You can't control it. You can't muzzle it. You can't... um, tone it down. You can't try to reduce it. It is something that is so powerfully in people. It has a lot to do with separateness. It has a lot to do with the very fact of being born. There's something about the actual fact of being humbly unable to do anything for oneself that seems to produce in every person who's ever lived in all its variety of suppressions and plumbing reversals and um, non-expressed sublimations and uh, occasionally expressed but off to one side horrible manifestations. Rage and anger seems to be something that is absolutely endemic to the very, uh, the, the curse of birth. This seems to be part of life in the curse of birth, the curse of separateness, the curse of desire, the curse of concupiscence, the curse of the breast. These things, for whatever um, ultimate reasons and in whatever 
forms that they assume with people. Anger is something that is so powerful and it results in most of collective human history and not to mention uh, human um, family breakdown and terrible personal human breakdown. And um, as I was reading uh, Huxley's um, what, 1948, 47, something like that, Ape and Essence, a sort of sci-fi prediction, a very, very short book by Huxley that I think you'll agree is not successful, such as uh, Time Must Have a Stop, the earlier novel is, because of a variety of reasons, the format in which it is, uh, he didn't quite give it the full development that a number of um, plot turns and framings and rhetorical narrative devices warranted. Nevertheless, the anger in the human race is seen even in this apocalyptic or dystopic form as unsurpassable, um, um, uncontravenable, <laughs> incontrovertible. Uh, it is impossible to overlay, to bury, or to destroy. And Huxley's pessimism about the human condition, which I think is simply empirically verifiable and realistic, uh, and which caused him to oppose the Second World War in such a powerful and, uh, reading it today, prophetic and yet also counterintuitive and highly unpopular way. All of that leads me to say one of the, um, to look for antidotes towards anger. Now, there's some very deep antidotes towards anger, and the primary one is to express it and uh, to merge with it and to go through it and to become one with it such that it is therefore grounded and really in the um, merging with it and assimilating of the negativity of rage, there seems to be the potential of detaching from it and walking away from it and standing down looking upon it. And there's a whole vast experience of people in all kinds of therapies which would uh, help this to be uh, to happen and would uh, vary the proportions of treatment and how it goes. And I firmly believe that it is possible to ameliorate anger. But one of the things that I found that is so um, um, helpful is the absurd, the ironic and the absurd. Now, 90% of the time one talks in these kinds of terms, I'm now going to talk about people don't understand. They, they think you're serious. And let me say something about the absurd. In order to fully get the benefit of the absurd, for example, Attack of the Crab Monsters, that wonderful movie with Ed Nelson and other fine actors and actresses, of Roger Corman's early period. To get the benefit of that, you have to, on the one hand, love it. Usually that means you saw it as a child and it, uh, because you didn't have all these various uh, competing voices, because for you, purity of heart was still possible in willing one thing. You loved it. It, it captured your some deep childlike or childish part of you. Let's call it childlike. And the wonder, the fear, the terror... And the abreaction and catharsis of something so absurd was uh, not ruled out by somebody else's sophisticated voice, and you took it, and you bit it, uh, and you... Uh, bit it all off and this became a part of you. Now as an adult you look back upon it and you realize that something that was truly ridiculous is also a wonderful, enjoyable, risible part of you. So the combination of the laughter you derive now from looking back at your own child who still lives with you, sort of like the character Walter lives with the hero of the new Muppets movie. Uh, he never grows up. Walter always stays at three feet while the hero keeps growing and growing physically in uh, terms of height. Well, in that same way, when the absurd is when you both love the thing that is uh, that is now seen to be a 
total, absolute camp joke. But it's not camp because you're not laughing at it. You're laughing at it as someone who also is in love with it. And therefore, there's a kind of a... The truly absurd sensibility is able to somehow derive great benefit from the absurdity. You stand away from it, and yet it is also part of you. So you look at Attack of the Crab Monsters, and you are just so affectionate you can't stand it because you love you, that part of you which loved Attack of the Crab Monsters. And at the same time, you as an adult, can look back upon with compassion upon your own child. It's really you looking back on you with compassion as opposed to, uh, you know, horrified. I mean, how many Christians that I meet that come from, you know, that, that, that are now PhDs from Scottish or English universities who, who look back with just alarm at their origins. Usually, you know, the, the fact is maybe there's the Bible college bachelors and then, a, you know, some seminary that, that they would be embarrassed to mention in the circles that they're now moving in. And so they it's hard to look back with affection and, and love and, and feeling at uh, Oral Roberts when you have just received your PhD and are competing for positions in, uh, you know, um, some prestigious, apparently English, Scottish, American university. So you're always in a kind of, um, of war with parts of you in life. And that goes for all of us, by the way, with our sex life, with our childhood, with our memories, with our parents, with the house we grew up in. And we're all embarrassed about parts of ourselves. Everybody knows this. Well, the great thing about the absurd, it's when you look back with compassion upon the child in you who loved this stuff, whatever this stuff was, and instead of wanting to just, um, you know, heaven forfend, you know, absolutely not, just never, not again, you look upon it with uh, delight and uh, feeling and sympathy and compassion. Well, that's why the absurd is such a tremendous antidote to anger, because it it kind of has a, you, you, instead of being bifurcated, you are able to uh, assimilate this negativity, which you thought was a negativity, but in fact, come to find out, is something absolutely delightful. Now, I've made a, an adult career out of this, and speaking of career as my life, and I wanted today to talk about the uh, abreacting uh, potential of the absurdity of lounge crooner classics. Now we get to the real thing. Now, um, specifically, I'm talking about uh, actually five songs, of which only four really, that I'm aware of, and I'm, I'm certain that there are others. I'm certain that there are others. The other day I was reading um, Adonis uh, Elegy um, uh, for John Keats that was written in 1821 or published in 1821 by Percy Bysshe Shelley, and you know I was reading this extraordinary last stanzas, the whole thing as it turns out, of this amazing elegy, and I'd never read it before. I mean, I couldn't believe it. Here was this poem of prodigious world-class fame in the history of English romantic poetry. And to be honest with you, I'd never read it. And here I am at age 60, almost, you know, moving on from there. And I'd never read Adonis, the uh, Shelley's uh, elegy to John Keats. And what a fool I was. Well, in the same way, I probably don't know all the relevant lounge crooner classics, but I want to talk about a few of them. Now, you all say, golly, golly, if you can only play them. Well, I just can't do it. I don't know how to do it. And I'm, um, it's just too complicated. It's hard for me to, um, someone half my age could do it. But you can do it very easily. You can do it right now if you're right down to listen to. Let's start with the um, first of the, of, for me, the, the great lounge uh, crooner classics. Frankie Avalon's uh, title song uh, to the movie um, Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea. Erwin <clears throat> Allen's uh, 1961 classic. Uh, again, I'm able to love this absurdity because I was there. 
there. I actually went to RKO Keith's Theater or Lowe's Palace Theater, whatever. It was one of those two in downtown Washington and saw Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea, which is a terrible movie about the Van Allen belt blowing up. It's an early ecological movie. And in some ways it's great and in some ways it's absolutely awful and it spawned a very popular and appallingly bad and totally wonderful television series with David Edison and uh, Richard Basart, who was in La Strada. But the original had um, Walter Pidgeon and I think David Edison and also wonderful Barbara Eden and um, I think Joan Fontaine. I think it may have been Olivia de Havilland, one of those two, but I think it was Joan Fontaine and Peter Laurie and others and Frankie Avalon. But that's so great about it is the song. You cannot possibly have seen the movie without being forever imprinted by the lounge crooner. That's a, those are our words. We would just say really bad song that overlays the title credits. Come with me and take a con. Come with me and take a voyage to the bottom of the sea. Now, it's pitched higher, and you can just go on YouTube. Go on YouTube, Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea, 1961 um, theme song, and it'll play up in exactly five seconds from now. And it is so great and so completely at odds with the movie. It, it It's sort of a kind of a romantic song, a seductive song, kind of. You know, we can have a great time if we can get off this beach and go to a romantic voyage to the bottom of the sea. I mean, in a way, it's a great idea. Matter of fact, it is a great idea. Let's do it now. I mean, what would be more fun than to take Mary on a voyage to the bottom of the sea? Some of you will remember a uh, Lester Del Rey kids' novel called Attack from Atlantis, which was originally published in a um, in a kids' series with the famous now famous covers. I was at a fair recently when it was like $120 or $50 for an original edition of Attack from Atlantis. But um, something absolutely wonderful, especially for a little boy, about diving to the bottom of the sea with somebody. Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea, Frankie Avalon. Now, you immediately move to the next of the uh, terror classics, the Crownge. Um, Crownge classics, Lounge Crooner classics, when you go to the same year, a movie we also loved, and everybody saw it, but it was not a Hollywood B or even A film, which I think Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea was moving in that area, sort of a B plus. Journey to the Seventh Planet, produced by Ib Melchior, Sid Pink, and starring John Agar in his, uh, well, I mean, I can talk a lot about the movie, Journey to the Seventh Planet. Now, you and I know that in, I think it's a movie called Matinee. Uh, the kids in that exact era are having fun, and one of them says, uh, Hey, have, have you heard about the new movie Journey to the Seventh Planet? And the other guy's little kid, is a fifth grader my age, is taken in by it and said, No, is it any good? And they say, Yeah, it's the first cinematic journey to your anus. Well, <laughs> I mean, talk about the kind of humor. Uh, and I didn't say that, by the way. That's not my joke. I can't tell you how wonderfully absurd that humor is. I mean, if you're not laughing now, there is something, I believe, wrong with you. If you are not laughing about that a, a Scandinavian produced, I want to say Swedish, but it may have been Danish. It may have been Norwegian, but I think it was Danish uh, with a heavy German team in there. Journey to the Seventh Planet. First cinematic journey to you know where. Now, that uh, movie, which you can also YouTube right now, it's available on video, I think, with a movie called Invisible Invaders, and you will find it one of the most desultory, impossible to watch, truly boring movies of its kind ever made with a kind of charming uh, romantic subplot that I personally love. But 
All that aside, Journey to the Seventh Planet has a classic lounge crooner song right in that era where a, uh, I think a German uh, uh, tenor, Otto Brandenburg, comes on and sings what some people call is a romantic lounge classic, Journey to the Seventh Planet. There will never be a da-da-da-da-da-da until you come with me to take a journey to the seventh planet. I mean, the, the levels of irony in that situation of Otto Brandenburg's lounge crooning or simply titled classic song in English, Journey to the Seventh Planet, a German speaker singing probably in a studio, Lord knows where, um, a song entitled Journey to the Seventh Planet written by, it looks like the names are American, but in that day and age, names were frequently disguised. It probably was Victor Hugo. You know, It is absolutely wonderful. Go right now and YouTube Otto Brandenburg's theme song from Ib Melchior's 1961 Journey to the Seventh Planet. Now, I'm not finished. Now we move to that wonderful year, 1968, which is such a serious year in American history. And boy, was it a serious year in Europe. I mean, 1968, one of those Edition Gallimard classics, you know, those wonderful classics that is in black with wonderful illustrations and so thorough, scholarly, but so beautifully illustrated, is just devoted to the year 1968 in France because of the great émeute in Paris and the terrible riots. We knew all about it and we know all about it here. And... You know, Berkeley and uh, Maria, Maria, Mario, whatever his name was, and Columbia and the Low Library and all of that. But what you may not remember is that the real thing that was going on in the year 1968 had nothing to do with those serious overturnings of the establishment during the height of the Vietnam War, but rather with the unfolding of two absolutely fabulous Hammer Horror films, which are so dreadful and so wonderful. Now, again, it's the absurd. They are wonderful, even in their own terms, and totally bad and ridiculous, and yet, really, um, if you have the right sympathy, these will make your life happy. Your rage can dissipate. Go, uh, 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 go Netflix, um, Anchor Bay's DVD of the movie The Lost Continent, and just listen to the peddlers, P-E-L-L-E-R-S, singing... The lounge classic, The Lost Continent, with that organ. Just listen to that amazing organ in the background and how it sort of moves and gets a little sort of funky, a a little. And uh, you can go right now on YouTube and look under The Lost Continent 1968 theme song, and you'll hear it. And, of course, the movie. I'm looking at the movie. I've got these movies right here. They're all right sitting in front of me, except, unfortunately, for Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea, which I gave to somebody in my last but one job and never got it returned. But, anyway, um, uh, that will be rectified. But The Lost Continent. Now, let me tell you about The Lost Continent. It is a movie in which... A group of people in 1968 is based on a Dennis Wheatley novel, which I'm also looking at, which is far inferior to the film, in my opinion. It is based on the idea that a group of uh, passengers on a, quote, tramp steamer that is carrying TNT and illegal cargo through a variety of intrigues of of spies and um, smugglers and uh, people with a past. Hildegard Neff is in it. She's so world-weary and so great. And Eric Porter, the fantastic Eric Porter, soon to become Terrence Radigan's great star, maybe even before this, uh, you have Eric Porter playing the captain, and through a variety of machinations and a trip in a lifeboat, and then they return to the original boat, and Michael Ripper's in it, I think. No, somebody else is probably is the bartender. But they arrive, and uh, they, they come back to this thing, and all of a sudden, 
off Patagonia, somehow the streamer has drifted into a huge sea, a Sargasso Sea, that is completely covered and invaded by weed, or we would say seaweed, uh, which is presided over by uh, uh, survivors and remnants of the Spanish Inquisition. So here we are with this group of oddly placed, psychosexually involved and non-evolved and people, one of whom is a Scottish Presbyterian who's constantly saying wonderful things about God, but with a frown. And uh, he represents the Protestant view of Dennis Wheatley, I suppose. He's actually in the, uh, he's in the, uh, in the, um, the book. And uh, the beautiful Susanna Lee and um, all these other actors, Eric Porter and the world-weary Hildegard Neff and a really weaselly, horrible caricature of a, quote, Latin type who gets his. And they find themselves in a weird Sargasso Sea that is run by the Spanish Inquisition of people who three or four hundred years ago were trapped in this place. And also Huguenot or Protestant refugees from these people who were their slaves and who walk across the Sargasso Sea in a kind of weird kind of contraption that looked like inflatable balloons and and sort of the kind of harnesses that when you're hang gliding you do and they walk from galleon to steamer to it's unbelievable but what you also find out is that they're monsters they're at least three huge sea monsters the special effects which are all done with kind of air hoses and pipes and eyes that, I mean it's so fakey and so ridiculous and so awful and so wonderful and somehow this movie which has a great conclusion all about religion typical of Hammer. They throw, it's a very Protestant movie. It's a totally anti-papist movie with a strong, as opposed to secular uh, anti-Catholicism, it's a Protestant anti-Catholicism in a Hammer horror film with the guy who plays the mummy in the, sh- the mummy shroud playing um, the Grand Inquisitor at an organ on this ship where they're having these heavily Baroque church services. So if you're a Protestant, run, do not walk. If you uh, like um, really bad sea monsters, run, do not walk. And if you like really, really good movies that are also really awful, but at the same time really good, you must see The Lost Continent. And what you will be find uh, fits so beautifully is the classic song, The Lost Continent, by the peddlers with this unbelievably weird and in some ways very beautiful organ behind it. Now, I'm not finished. Because the same year, by the way, I could go on to speak about the 1979-1978 theme song, which is long since gone from the prints that you buy uh, in the 1978 movie with uh, Aaron Gray uh, and uh, that wonderful star, uh, Gil Rogers, is that his name? Buck Rogers in the 25th century. And those who saw it in the theaters, as our sons and we did, and our friends, we who saw it in the theaters in New York, Remember that it began with a title sequence with Aaron Gray and another actress who plays uh, the evil Empress, Empress Altara or somebody like that. I'll get, come back to it. All scantily clad in a wonderful uh, mid-70s um, title montage with a great song. Now, the song later became the tune of the theme song of the Buck Rogers in the 25th century um, 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 uh, uh, television series. But originally it was uh, uh, sung by uh, someone I do not know the name of, and it was called Suspension. Far above the da 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 la da 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 la da 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 da
This almost anthemic, really pretty tune with all these these two beautiful girls uh, in various states of Hollywood semi-undressed, but all very non-vulgar. And there they are, and anyone who saw it who's at all susceptible would have said, this is really great, but it's way too good for this podcast. The concluding song for this podcast is uh, the fourth and last, although you can tell me if there are more, and every one of these can be gotten from YouTube. Just press the button and you get YouTube. Type in Journey to the Seventh Planet 1961 theme song and Otto Brandenburg will come right up. The Peddlers will come right up with The Lost Continent, but you have to type in 1968 and obviously Frankie Avalon with Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea. Now that was more of a like a top 10 or top 20 hit. These others are should have been number one. Now finally, in 1968, while all you know what was breaking loose in various college campuses and elsewhere, Hammer put out another film called The Vengeance of she. Now, she, based on an H. Ryder Haggard novel, had been a huge success with Ursula Andress and Christopher Lee and others. And so they obviously had to put out a, a, um, a, um, a sequel to it. It's called The Vengeance of She with a, a Czech actress named Olinka Berova. B-E-R-O-V-A. She's actually very beautiful. Uh, she's not much of an actress, I think we can honestly say, but uh, she fulfills adequately the requirements of the job. And Robert Judd, or is that his name? Edward Judd. Edward Judd, who is so sober and good as the lead, the male lead, and Noel Willman is in it, who I think came from Ulster originally. I think he's a, uh, an orange, uh, I mean an Ulsterman. And uh, any number of other people you all recognize, but The Vengeance of She, which is a, 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 a ends very well, um, starts very well, and it starts with one of these lounge songs with that funny, haunting organ, and always about to get a bit of a beat, but I think The Vengeance of She sort of fails to actually gather steam to really revolutionize your life, but I happen to love it, and who is she? La da da. She, who is she? It's got this, it's pure mid-60s, late-60s lounge. Uh, And it's sung by Robert Field, whoever he was. So, I've uh, told you about these great classics. The first was Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea by Frankie Avalon, 1961. The second was Otto Brandenburg, He May Head the List, with Journey to the Seventh Planet from 1961. Then I've mentioned The Lost Continent, my personal favorite, and probably all in all the most the best lasting odd song of the bunch, The Lost Continent by the, quote, peddlers. They were actually a pretty well-known group in England at that time, but they I don't think they crossed over to this country particularly. And finally, quote, Robert Field, end of quote, and it'll probably turn out that he's really famous, but I don't know who he was, but The Vengeance of She, that's a movie I know. And uh, most of these movies I saw in the theaters, and so I'm able to, they're part of me. So I have compassion and sympathy and a real delight in that little boy who enjoyed these movies so much. And at the same time, as an adult, I find them absolutely, fabulously um, ridiculous. And I, the more, the worse the monsters are, the better. The more comic book oriented they are, but not camp. They, they, these movies had to take themselves seriously. They cannot be send-ups. And none of these movies, Journey, She, 
continent, lost continent, or voyage. None of them are send-ups. They both take they all take themselves very, very seriously. Of which the best, because it takes itself so seriously and has some really good actors and has a very unusual idea underneath it all about religious religion. But in a Christian context, it's not interfaith dialogue. There's no interfaith dialogue. When the Spanish galleon has uh, receives its fate, you, and the and the inquisitors are whatever fate they are doled out, you sort of uh, a certain little bit of the Guy Fox November the fifth. The burning of the bonfires, a little bit of July 12th, will sort of surface in some people. And I find it really quite delightful for that reason, as well religiously and theologically. But you see, these are so good because they will give you a kind of new window, just as giant crab movies did, and just as suspension in Buck Rogers in the 25th century does, and hopefully Earl Kenton and uh, Island of Lost Souls and the House of Dracula forsake the cross. Uh, you know the um, the alligator people and your own life and um, certainly journey. You know, just a city boy born and raised in South Detroit. What is South Detroit? You know, the whole thing is going to make your life richer, more beautiful. And look, what is for you is the absurd. I mean, what in your life? What about your? You know, it was the seventy. You know, in the seventies when you grew up. I grew up in the late fifties and early sixties, but you grew up maybe seventies or eighties or nineties. Uh, maybe you know what would be the same. What, what? Where would that be? What is the absurd for you? The Muppets is such a perfect example of the coming together of the absurd and the real, and. Uh, and yet the Muppets also is a little bit more self-conscious. Not the early days, not Jim Hansen's great period, but sometimes it's more self-conscious, although still that's the, we're going in that direction. What about your life is totally ridiculous as a little child, but now you have such affection for it and you see its ridiculousness in a very fresh, delightful light, and it puts the rage that otherwise could destroy your relationships with women, your relationships with men, your relationships with bosses, your relationships relationships with professors, your relationship with friends, your relationship with clergy, your relationship with lawyers, your relationship with parents and siblings. All these things can kind of really fade away. Not fade away. Boom, boom, boom. Boom, boom. Not fade away. Not fade away. I think I'm combining a, a Rolling Stones and a pre-Rolling Stones uh, African-American song with uh, with uh, um, uh, the Grateful Dead. Not fade away. Not Phil Lesh. Anyway, or Bob Weir, one of those two. You really will find that when uh, these uh, not fade away uh, memories uh, uh, collect with your adult, you'll be able to be a person of laughter, and you won't be a humorless person who inevitably is an angry person, and finally, inevitably, if you ever become a powerful person, will become a scourge of the earth. Thank you so much for listening.